thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So last week, I covered chapter 6. Most of you weren't here, but I covered chapter 6, the book of Genesis. I'm going to give you a very brief um, review. It's, it's going to be on the website this week. Chapter 6 is very important because it is apocalyptic in its nature. This is the chapter where God is telling um, Noah, I'm about to do it. I'm just going to cause a flood that will cover the whole world. And the reason why I'm saying it's apocalyptic is because in that chapter, God gives us a pattern that explains to us how He's going to deal with us across time, throughout history. God has a pattern that He follows. And that pattern is very well detailed in that chapter. It's exactly the same pattern you'll find in the book of Revelation. It's the same pattern that you will find in the Gospels. It is a pattern by which God starts by saying, there is, number one, there is a triggering event, something that caused God to say, I'm about now to unleash the curses of the covenant. And in most recent time, I already told you that the triggering effect will be if the hierarchy of the church has become tepid, indifferent. Not teaching the truth anymore. Because when this happens, the truth of God can flow through the church to the world. Therefore, all the people who live in sin will go to hell. And God does not want that. God sends warnings. He doesn't act right away. So... In, the book, in chapter 6, he said, the life of man will be 120 years. He gave them three generations to repent. Three generations. Very patient. Then he sends a second warning. And then a third. And typically, the reaction of people to the warning is to harden their hearts. So what do I mean by that? I'll give you an example. Brought to our level. So let's say you had a good day. By this I mean you got up in the morning, you said your morning prayers. And then... You had a good day where you really focused on what you had to do. You were recollected. You were not, um, you didn't lose sight of God. At noon, you might have said the, um, um, the Angelus. And then at three in the afternoon, you said the Child of Divine Mercy. You said the Rosary. You said your night prayers. It looked like a beautiful day. And then here you're about to go to bed and you have a rash. A rash. And it's really itchy. Now there's one of two reactions at this moment. One of two. One is, Lord, why me? Why give me a rash? What did I do? Look, I did my prayers, did this and the other. Give him the whole list. How come you did this to me? Now that is okay. The next step would be, oh, forget it. I'm not going to pray anymore. That is hardening of heart. That's when we harden our hearts. And I gave you this example in particular because 
pride is always lurking behind much of what we do. And pride is like the sand. You know the man who builds his house on the sand? That sand is pride. Whereas the man who builds his house on, on, on the rock, the rock is humility. Pride will always, will always, pride will never be your friend. Pride will always betray you. Humility is your friend because it's always stable. It's like a rock. It never moves. So, when God does that, you have one of two reactions, as I said. One, when you say, you harden your heart. You basically reject God. The other one is to say, thank you, Jesus, for allowing you to have a share in your suffering. Now, you took all your day and you turned it into a much, glorious, a much greater event, an event of glory for you and for God and His church, because you did not harden your heart. You listened to His voice. You accepted His will. That's the making of saints. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes? Okay. And typically, when God begins unleashing these curses of the covenant, men in the world harden their hearts. I had savings for my 401k all these years, and now they're gone. Where's God? I had a good job. I lost it. Where's God? To harden our hearts. But then God is still merciful, and He gives time for people to repent again. And eventually, eventually, He just does it. He unleashes those curses. And typically, the curses are initially medicinal. They're there to bring us back. But in the end, ultimately, they're not. They damn us to hell. God's holiness is something beyond our understanding. We can't even begin to understand it. But we don't have to understand it. We have to recognize it. And love God who is all holy. And His mercy is precisely there because He is all holy. The more we understand God's holiness, the more we appreciate His mercy. And so tonight, I'm going to cover chapters 7, 8, and 9. I'm not going to go through them verse by verse. I'm going to cover certain salient events in those three chapters. I do recommend that you get a hold of that lecture on chapter 6 um, from the from the. Bi- from the Website, uh, again, the website is Corbono, Q-O-R-B-O-N-O.com. There's no U in that word, Q-O-R-B-O-N-O, Corbono.com. And you'll find it there under the heading of the book of Genesis. Um, if, you, if you go there, book of Genesis, the third series called The Fall, the last lecture, which is not there yet today, but if you give it a week, you will find it there. Chapter 6 is what we're going to be covering. Tonight, I'm going to go through chapters 7, 8, and 9. And what I want to do, as, as an assignment, by the way, do read chapter 7, 8, and 9. They're very easy read. Essentially, they retell the events of the flood. God told Noah, get in the, in, uh, in the ark. I'm going to shut it. And then the flood happens. The ark floats. And eventually, the flood, the flood comes to an end. And the water recedes. Noah comes out of the ark. He makes a sacrifice. He, he makes an offering. And God blesses Noah. This is the portion that I want to cover tonight. The first thing I want to point out to you is that there is always a discussion and debate over the historicity, the authenticity of the deluge, the flood. Has it really happened or is it a cute story? There is no reason for us to doubt that historically the, the, the flood did happen. Biblically, from a biblical standpoint, start with Scripture. Uh, Matthew 24, 37-39. This is our Lord speaking. And as in the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, 
that were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, even till that day in which Noah entered into the ark, and they knew not till the flood came and took them all away, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. The key in this passage that I read to you from Matthew 24, 17 through, uh, I'm sorry, 37 through 39, you'll also find it in Luke 17, 26 and 27. The key is that our Lord is comparing two things. The days of Noah with the coming of the Son of Man. Now we all know that the coming of the Son of Man is real. It is going to happen. All right. Therefore, by inference, the days of Noah are also real. Because it makes no sense for our Lord to compare a real event with an event that was sort of symbolic. So in the minds of Jesus, there's absolutely no doubt that the flood t- took place. Now, this particular passage, I'm going to point it out to you, because how many of you are familiar with the, um, with the um, rapture? A couple of you? Yeah? Rapture? Most of you have not heard of it, right? The rapture is, um, is huge among Protestants. You, if you talk to Protestants, you might be hit by it. The notion is that before the coming of Jesus, he's going to rapture the believers to the clouds. He will going to take them up. And there's a movie that was made some years ago where this, this woman is listening to her husband shaving in the bathroom, and then suddenly she hears a clunk, and she goes to the bathroom, and the shaver is sort of uh, dangling at the end of the cable, and the husband is gone. He was taken. She wasn't. Ooh. Well, the whole idea of this rapture is based on this misunderstanding of the words of Jesus when he said, in the coming of the Son of Man, one woman will be taken, the other will not. Two will be working in the field. One will be taken, the other will not. And the conclusion is, therefore, the ones who are taken are the lucky ones. And the ones who are stuck here are the damned. But in reality, it's the exact opposite. Because Jesus is making reference to Noah. During the times of Noah, how many were taken? A whole bunch. And who were left? Noah and his family, about eight. Those were the ones who were saved. The taken were not. They got it upside down. I'm just pointing that out to you because you might hear about it pre-millennium, the pre-millennium, the post-millennium, the mid-millennium. There's a whole, bin, the whole business of the millennium just so that you can be aware that this might hit you one of those days, especially if you're in universities. Peter 3.20, Peter chapter 3, verse 20. When they waited for the patience of God in the days of Noah, when the ark was a building, wherein a few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. In the minds of St. Peter, there's no doubt this is a historical event. Uh, likewise, I'll give you a number of other references. I'm going to read them. Isaiah 54.9, Nahum chapter 1, verse 8, Ezekiel 13.13, 13, the book of Sirach 44.18, and Psalm 28.10, and 31.6. So from scripture, there is no doubt that historically the flood took place. All right. Now, the patristic historicity of the deluge, patristic means the, the church fathers. All those early writers, especially the pre-Nicene ones, before 400, who actually wrote. And we consider them to be the fathers of the church. And we look for them when we are trying to understand what is the position of the church if we don't have official documents on it. 
And so St. Ambrose and St. Ephraim and St. John Chrysostom and St. Augustine, St. Jerome, there's, a, there's a, a number of those fathers who wrote about these different events. And unanimously, unanimously, there's no disagreement among all the fathers, the flood happened. So far so good? Okay, now, there are two ways to look at the universality of the flood. One is geographical, the other one is anthropological. So the geographical universality means the flood covered the entire earth, every bit of it. The anthropological one says that the flood covered the area where man lived. It was localized. The, the geographical universe, universality has a number of issues. There are challenges associated with it. Um, presumably, this is what most people think when they read the, the story of the flood, that it was the whole earth. But then they have a little bit of a queasy feeling. Well, if it was the whole earth, I mean, it covered all the mountains. Right? All the, the mountains were covered about 20 feet high in water. Think about Mount Everest. It's, uh, it's interesting. Right? Now you have, to come, you have to think about how you might make that work. Before we even look at it scientifically, we look at it from sacred scripture. First of all, there is nowhere in sacred scripture that indicates to us it must be the whole earth. Why? Because the word earth, Adama, in Hebrew, can mean one of two things. It can mean the earth, it could mean the land, the place where people were living. All right? So it can go both ways. But we have to figure out which, one, which way it would go. The second one is that uh, we don't have a patristic tradition that says it's the whole earth. In fact, quite a few of the fathers themselves exempt portions of the earth. So, for instance, St. Ephraim exempts Eden. In his mind, Eden was not covered by the flood. And so do many other fathers. Um, in the Septuagint, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was done under Alexander the Great. Now, after Alexander the Great, when a number of uh, Jews left Jerusalem, went to Alexandria, 70 of them, that's why the word Septuagint comes from it, and translated scripture from Hebrew to the Greek, because most contemporaries, most Jews or contemporaries, would understand Greek better than they did Hebrew. And so they translated scripture into the Greek. And the curious thing about it, remember Methuselah? We looked at Methuselah, the oldest man who ever lived. Well, in the Septuagint version, Methuselah lived nine years past the flood. Nine years past the flood. Whereas in the Hebrew version, no, he doesn't. Now, for a number of reasons, I don't want to get into this right now, that was never corrected. It was never brought back to the equivalence in the Hebrew version. But St. Augustine, for instance was of the opinion that the area where Methuselah lived was never covered by the flood. What is important for us right now isn't whether that is true or not, but that there is no patristic evidence to support a geographical universality. So we are not bound, therefore, to believe that. Interestingly enough, some writers contemporary to St. Augustine, not the fathers, exempted Mount Olympus. You know, Mount Olympus is where all the gods, the Greek gods, lived. I don't know why they exempted Mount Olympus, but they did. But most of the fathers were not in agreement with that. And there'll be some other facts I can give you about 
the work of a certain Vosius, but let it be for now. This is enough to say that we don't have uh, tradition. Now, scientifically, we have a number of challenges, if we were to consider it, that covered the whole Earth. Um, first of all, the flood is not the end of the Ice Age. Some would say, oh, it was the end of the Ice Age. No, it's not. It's a very specific event that was not accounted for. People did not expect it to happen, and it happened. Secondly, so if the surface of the Earth is estimated to be 510 million square kilometers, and the highest mountain being about 9 kilometers, uh, uh, which is Mount Everest, in order for you to cover the whole Earth with water 20 feet deep, you basically would need enough water to fill a cube that would be a thousand miles long by a thousand miles wide by a thousand miles high. I'm not talking about the waters in the ocean. Okay, above that. Um, just to give you an idea what I'm talking about, um, the International Space Station is approximately 220 miles above Earth. A thousand miles is a lot of miles. One popular explanation for that is that the water was in a giant vapor canopy. There was this giant vapor canopy above the Earth, and that's what caused the precipitation. Well, there are two issues with this one. The first one is that for that canopy to hold this much water, it had to be 180,000 miles high. A little bit too high. And the second more important question, if that water fell on Earth, where did it go? Because after all, all the water we have is all the water we have. Earth doesn't manufacture water, right? So think about it. Those people who are against recycling, we've been recycling ever th since this planet existed. So that's all we do. We recycle the water we have. We don't fabricate water, right? There's no water from outer space hitting us. So if all the water we have is the water we have, where did the water from the deluge came to cover the whole, all of Earth all the way up to the mountains? You see the problem? So therefore, it doesn't really hold. And neither do we need it to hold. So fundamentally, geographically, um, there are many challenges for explaining this way. The anthropological universality states the following. Number one, all men perished. All of them. All right? With the exception maybe of Methuselah. But leaving that, leaving, leaving that aside, the fathers universally believed that all men died. And the reason is because of a do the doctrine in 1 Peter 3.20. I'm going to read that to you, but don't ask me questions about it. Um, because I don't have to cover it right now, and it is a very, very, very difficult, maybe one of the most, if not the most difficult passage in all of Scripture. The first letter of St. Peter, verse 320. Let me read it to you, starting from verse uh, 18. For Christ also died for sins once, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Okay? In which he went and preached to the spirits in prison, 
who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. That paragraph here is actually an adaptation of the actual text. Uh, it doesn't say prison. It say, it say actually um, Hades, in which he went and preached to the spirits in Hades who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. What does he mean? Christ going to Hades to preach the spirits who formerly did not obey. We don't really know. There, are, there is a, there's a whole literature dealing with that particular passage. But the key for us is that out of this passage, the fathers, the fathers always thought that that indicated that all men, all souls perished. And though I can't tell you that I could find a, an actual dogma that says we're held to it, the Catechism of the Catholic Church is fairly emphatic on this. So here is paragraph 1219 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The Church has seen in Noah's Ark a prefiguring of salvation by baptism, by baptism, for by it a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. And again, 845, paragraph 845. To reunite all his children scattered and led astray by sin, the Father willed to call the, the whole of humanity together into his Son's Church. The church is the place where humanity must rediscover its unity and salvation. The church is the place where humanity must, must rediscover its unity and salvation. The church is the world reconciled. She is that bark which in the full sail of the Lord's cross, by the breath of the Holy Spirit, navigates safely in this world. According to another image dear to the church fathers, she is prefigured by Noah's ark, which alone saves from the flood. Which alone saves from the flood. What doctrine do we derive out of these passages? What did the fathers derive? One particular doctrine that causes a lot of people some heartburn, especially in the Catholic Church. And what is that doctrine? Can anybody suggest something? No salvation outside the Catholic Church. You see how it follows? If the ark prefigures the Catholic Church and only eight people were saved, namely those who were in the ark, it follows, therefore, that only those who are in the church are saved. Do you see it? We don't prefabricate those things. There is no secret services in the Vatican sitting there trying to see what kind of spin we can put on the text. Scripture imposes truth. Our job is not to fabricate truth. Our job is to Learn it, live it, and pass it on faithfully. Do you understand? That is the image. Remember the four senses when I told you the four senses of Scripture, one of which the anagogical sense applies to the church? Here you go. They looked at the ark. The fathers unanimously looked at the ark and saw that the ark was the means of salvation of those who were redeemed. And they saw that there were only eight and no one else was saved. God did that. God willed it this way. Well, then, if the ark prefigures, meaning it's the image, it's the sign that points to the reality, the greater reality. If, therefore, 
of all humanity, only eight were saved, those who were on the ark, how much more eternal life, to attain to eternal life, to cross into eternal life, would happen through the real thing, which is the Catholic Church. Hence, they've derived the doctrine of no salvation outside the Catholic Church. It isn't that they wanted it this way. It would have been a lot easier if we could figure it some other way because we don't have to argue with everybody, particularly the Orthodox. They get really upset with us when we say that. But here it is. It just follows naturally from this text. I'm not making it up. This is our faith. When you stay, when you stand every Sunday after Sunday, and you say in the creed, I believe in one holy, apostolic, Catholic church. That's what you mean. You mean that you believe there is no salvation outside the Catholic church. And if you don't believe it, you should believe me when I tell you you need to go to confession. You got some work to do. If you have difficulty with the doctrine, that's okay. You can say, I believe it, but I don't understand it. I believe it, by, but it's difficult to swallow. Because a thousand difficulties do not add up to one doubt. A thousand difficulties do not add up to one doubt. And you can take that and then wrestle with God, so to speak, just as Jacob did. You can ask God, enlighten me, explain it to me, show me. You can ask Our Lady, I'm having a difficulty for this one. Why? And by and by, you'll have the right people. You'll bump, you'll bump into the right people. You'll read the right books. And God will help you understand. And if you don't, all we'll have to do is get Father Isaac to come back here for another one of those retreats. And he'll take care of that for you. From our perspective, therefore, we do understand that it doesn't have to be geographically universal. But we do understand it is anthropologically universal. People died. All of them died. And it came without any warning. No warning. So in this period of Lent, it is good for us to always ask this, this question. Are you ready if God came for, your, for the flood for you today? Would you be ready? Father Isaac, during the retreat, he was here. He did this retreat on four days. told us of a friend of his who, in front of his bed, across from the bed, had, he had a sort of a big sign that said, uh, so-and-so, let's say John Doe, was born on uh, October 12, 1948, died on... Every night before he went to bed, he'd put the day, the date of that day. And he'd look at it. That's the day I'm going to die. Now, this is not a morbid thought. This is a thought that helps him ask the simple question. Am I ready to die? Is my life, is my life oriented towards God? So, those are the questions that we ask... Because God can come like a thief at night, and we don't know when He's going to come for all of us. Now, the deluge lasted 40 days. You know that. Why 40? Well, 40 is associated with purification. And I'm just going to give you a series of references. Uh, you, you should read some of them. I'll tell you which one you ought to read. And the others, um, just consider them. Exodus 24. Uh, Exodus chapter 24, particularly verse 18. That's where you find Moses on the mountain for 40 days, preparing himself. 40 years in the desert. 40 years in the desert. Numbers uh, 13.25 and 14.34. Ezekiel. Read chapter 4 of the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 4 of the book of Ezekiel. In that, God asks Ezekiel to lay for 40 days on one side and not move. 
Because God never didn't only prophesy with words. He prophesied with action. He might tell him, build a little house and do this to the house. So by him laying down 40 days on one side, not moving, he was actually making amend for the sins of his nation for 40 years. And a really, the thing that is very striking for me when I study scripture, and you see, you look at the lives of the saints, and you see how their life is very scriptural. You can see events in their lives that go back to scripture. In this particular instance, we have a portrait here on the side. You can't really see it very clearly of a nun. And her name is in Arabic, Rafka. And um, I understand it is translated as Rebecca. And this particular nun, St. Rafka, um, she asked to, to share in the sufferings of Christ. And for 30 years, for 30 long years, she was... She had a disease, which I don't really know what it is yet. But what I understand is that if anybody knows, please speak up. Well, she was more than paralyzed. She had a disease that caused the dislocation of all her bones. So the bones were not where they need to be in the sockets. And, and then she was blind, both eyes. And she was, uh, she was um, um, essentially throwing up blood three times a week. 30 years, it got to a point where they just could not move her. They just could not move her. She was laying on the same side. It's worth reading her life because if you really want to understand what man can do, and in the end of her life, and she was always cheerful, always cheerful. There's a great movie, by the way, with subtitles. It's Lebanese, but it's a great movie with English subtitles that was very well done, and the director ended up becoming a uh, priest. He became a priest when he finished doing the movie. But... You, you, it gives you a glimpse of what she had to go through. In fact, the flesh on her side rotted because they couldn't move her. They didn't know how to lift her up. And it made me think, was she, was she actually in a state where she was doing sacrifice for the rest of us? Is that what it was? For 30 years? How grave must our sins be that God would ask a human being to suffer this much? And ladies, don't ever let anybody tell you that there is something that a guy can do that you can't do. Because I have yet to see a guy who can top her. All right? Maybe St. Francis. Maybe. I'm not sure. When you read what she went through. At one point, she, they had to operate her in the eye. She agreed for the, to, the, to do the operation on one condition. No anesthetics. And here she was sitting on the chair, and that doctor, poor doctor, I'm sure he was nervous. I mean, how do you operate on somebody without anesthetics? Anyhow, he was trying to do the operation, and he ended up plucking her eye. And the priest who was with her and the nun who was with her were screaming their head off, and all she said was, Father, have you paid the good doctor? She's unbelievable. 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 And so... Those 40 days were part of that purgation, purification. Um, St. John Chrysostom points out that the mercy of God was to last 40 days. He says that God caused that flood to occur during 40 days and not in one swift tsunami to cover the whole thing for one reason and one reason only, to give these people a chance to repent. So he did it slowly out of his mercy. And so, none of you should be praying for a swift death. Okay? 
We always pray for to be guarded against swift death. Why? Because you have no chance to get the last right. You don't have chance to go to confession. You don't have chance to make your, your life right with God. We don't pray for that. Right? So that's what he gave them. And St. Maxim, um, Maximus points out that 40 days, that these 40 days prefigure Lent and baptism. So it's a model for Lent. That's why we go through 40 days of Lent. Right? Um, and besides which, we also have seven weeks total from beginning of Lent to the end of the, uh, of the season with a great, uh, with a great week. The other important thing that is that if you read the beginning of chapter 7 when the deluge happens, you'll see that, it is, uh, that we are really dealing with normal years. Some of you have asked me, were these real re- years, real years when speaking of the length of time that people lived? 900 years, were there real years or shortened years? Shorter years. Well, the answer is the real years because there's continuity across the flood. So that's why we, the, the, the flood lasted 40 days. Now, in chapter 7, verse 2 and 3, and we might uh, touch upon those uh, briefly, there is an interesting passage that happens here that caused some people uh, confusion because you all know that God asked Noah to take animals two by two into the ark. But in the beginning of chapter 7, read the following. So, verse 2, Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the air, also male and female, to keep their kind alive upon the face of all the earth. And so there seems to be some disjunction in the text between the initial account where God tells him take of all animals too, a male and a female in this particular text where he tells him to take um, you know, seven pairs of clean and one pair of unclean. Uh, the f- a couple of things we should keep in mind. Number one, remember that up to this point, up to this point, men was a vegetarian. Men did not eat meat. Why? Because God did not give man animals to eat. From Noah, from Adam we know that he was supposed to eat only from the trees, not kill animals. He was not given that um, right. So, therefore, it cannot be a a culinary um, criteria to decide whether it's clean or unclean. It doesn't mean seven which are clean that you can eat and one which you can't eat. But what it refers to is the the sacrifice. Those which are clean to be offered as a sacrifice, and those which are not. Okay? Seven to one in this, in this, in this ratio. So the, this is a special group of animals which are related to some sacrificial ritual, all the details of which we don't, we don't have, but they're implied from the text. So I just wanted to point that out to you, not to think that it is, um, there's a confusion in the text, but really it's for a different purpose. So there are two groups of animals, one which are really for preservation, and the other one is for offering sacrifices. Uh, the, the, the conclusion that St. Augustine draws out at this point is that if the ark is the symbol of the church, then it is only natural to expect the Catholic church on earth to contain both clean and unclean. Right? That's the reality of the church on earth. So it helps us keep in perspective what we're dealing with. Now, what we're dealing with here today is a little bit different than that. 
We're dealing with confusion. We're dealing with the fact that many, many, many Catholics are actually living in sin, that it's not being taught with forcefully, that they're not being directed to sort of correct their lives, uh, that most Catholics don't go to confession, and the list goes on. It's a very different situation we're in than what is being applied here, because the proportion was seven to one, not seven unclean and one clean. Right? And today the proportion seems to be going the other way if we judge by the number of people who go to confession. So maybe 10% of any given parish goes to confession. Now, <clears throat> remember that Moses sent out a raven, a dove. Remember the raven and a dove? Yes? No? Who doesn't remember that? It's okay. You don't have to remember it. Just let me know. So it'll help me direct my, uh, the course of the study. Noah sent out a raven and a, do- and a dove. Raven first and a dove next, right? And the raven did not come back, but the dove did come back. So why did he do that? Well, first it's important to understand that the ravens, ravens had a special use to seamen. Men at sea used ravens to figure out which direction to follow by the line of flight of the raven. When a raven flies straight, men at sea will know that's where earth is. That's where land is, I'm sorry. That's, how they fall. That's why he sent out the raven first. But in scripture it says it flew here and there, meaning it could not find anywhere to land. But it didn't come back. Why didn't it come back? Because raven can live off what? Carrion. Dead things. Okay? And there were plenty of dead things to eat, so it didn't have to come back. That explains that. And so that's the reason why St. John Chrysostom points out he was considered to be an unclean animal because he could not, he would be eating dead things. And so a secondary reason why God may have told him to take an unclean might be for this reason. He may have raven in mind, but it's not really clear. Um, St. Bede sees in the raven the fallen away Catholics, or the Catholics that are ensnared by the riches of the world. So those are the ones who sort of leave the church or are, not, are more concerned by the world than they are by their faith or by their health of their soul. And St. Augustine points out, I, I, I'm going to read this to you because it's really beautiful. This was part of his homily. So St. Augustine says the following. He points out the tiresome sound of the crow. If you've ever been woken up by a bunch of crows, right, arguing over your head. So, um, I have a macadamia nut tree, and those crows figured out that they could take the macadamia nut and drop them on the roof, hoping it will break. And they were fighting over it, on the roof, about 30 of them. It's not the most melodious sound you will hear when you wake up in the morning. I can assure you that that's um, not the most... That's not the first thing you'd like really to hear in the morning. So, he speaks of the tiresome sound of the crow. You do not know when that last hour is going to come, and yet you say, I'm reforming. So he's talking to people saying, yeah, yeah, I'll take care of my, myself tomorrow. I'll, I'll take care of it. I'll, I'll go to confession tomorrow. I'll start praying tomorrow. I'll do an examination of conscience tomorrow. I'll take my, my soul seriously tomorrow. Yeah, I might stop you know, doing this sin or that sin whether, you know, watching pornography or contraception or whatever the case may be, tomorrow. 
When are you going to reform? When are you going to change? Tomorrow, you say. Behold, often you say, tomorrow, tomorrow. You have really become a crow. Behold, I say to you that when you make the noise of a crow, ruin is threatening you. For that crow whose cowing you imitate went forth from the ark and did not return. That was a homily that he gave. And he called his congregation crows. Pigeons and doves have a much shorter range and will return if they do not find land. And furthermore, doves live at much lower elevation. So when he sent out the dove, he's looking for two things. Short land at short range and lower elevation. That's what he was after. Right? And the olive tree is hardy. It's a hardy tree. It's difficult to kill. And the leaf will indicate if regeneration has began and how far along it is. So by the size of the leaf, he could tell how far along the olive tree has been able to grow and what season he was in, although he knew what the season was. So that's what he was looking for when he sent out the dove. And that's why St. Augustine says that the olive branch symbolizes everlasting peace, and the dove is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Essentially, the dove went out and brought back the, the branch, signifying that the, the wrath of God has, is finished, and because it's coming back, it's bringing that good news back to the, the, the ark. Right? So... Whenever you see, and fundamentally, when you see the olive branch, the indication of the olive branch isn't that we have peace amongst ourselves, but it is God's wrath has, has been now, um, has been, um, is not kindled anymore. God's wrath is passing. That's what it is a symbol of. So we tend to humanize everything, and we think it's all about ourselves. But really, it isn't. Now, Noah offered, made a sacrifice when he went to, gro- to, to dry ground, and he offered it on an altar. Now, the altar, in, wh- why an altar? What is an altar? It's basically a, a flat surface. You can see it right here. We have an altar behind me, right? It's a fl- wh- what does it look like? It looked like a table. So, in many other religions, they understood the altar to be the table of the deity. That's where the deity would sit down to eat. So, you bring the deity food. That's, that's their understanding of it. Although in, in, the, um, in the Israelite faith, it is not clear that that's how they conceive of God, yet they use the same metaphor, the same image. Noah's sacrifice is a burnt offering. That's what Scripture says. He, offered, he made a burnt offering. And it's a term borrowed from the sacrificial system in Exodus. I'm going to tell you about it in a minute. However, before I go there, in, in, in that text, we hear that God saw that um, the, essentially God was pleased by the order of the sacrifice. But if you really think about it, first of all, God has no nostrils because he's a spirit. And number two, how could he be ble- pleased by charred meat? It is not particularly pleasant. The smell of charred meat, when you burn it completely, isn't pleasant. So why was he pleased? He wasn't pleased by the meat. He was pleased by the intention behind it. You understand? It's the intention of Noah. Now, in our masses, what do we use? What do we burn? We don't burn meat, thank God. But we burn incense. Why do we burn incense? 
just so we can, you know, keeps us occupied. Incense is the rising of our prayers and our sacrifices, both prayers and sacrifices. So there's this um, holy woman who had a vision during Mass where she said, as I was celebrating the Mass, I saw the guardian angels of all those present going up to the altar to adore our Lord. And some were carrying in their hands a bowl that was filled with the prayers and the sacrifices that their uh, guard had done during this week. And others walked sadly empty-handed. That's what this incense represents. It's every sacrifice you've made. And the sacrifices can be voluntary or involuntary. Something happens to you. Somebody, uh, I don't know, somebody hits you involuntarily, drops your your, your cup of coffee at work, whatever. If you said, God, I give you, I offer you this for 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 the reparation of sinners, for the soul in purgatory, for... Whichever intention you had, that is now something that you're bringing to Mass. All right? That's you bringing this intention with you. When you give money, when you give alms at the church, when you, not alms, when you actually give money, what do you think you're doing? So, please, think twice before you give money. Don't insult God. Don't give a dollar. If you have five dollars, give a dollar. Yeah, I can understand that. But most of you have more than that. If you go to a restaurant... You'll give more than a dollar and a tip. That money you're giving is a sacrifice. It is something you're sacrificing. It's part of that bowl you're putting. You're saying, you're important to me. I want to show it. You understand? So, don't be Scrooge with God. Because you can't outdo God in generosity. If you're generous with him, he's going to be way more generous with you. Right? So no, no quarters and no dollars. At the very least, you should be giving five bucks. And if you're not tithing, I'd like you to start thinking about tithing. Tithing is you take whatever you net you make and 10% of that will go to God. And that's the only place in all of Scripture that God said, test me on this and see what I'm going to do. That's the only place where He says, put me under the test. Tithe and see what I'm going to do for you. And 5% of that tithe should go to your church, your parish, and 5% should go to the poor. That is what we're talking about. We're saying sacrifice. Mother Teresa used to say, love until it hurts. Because if you love and it doesn't hurt, you're not loving. All right. I'll briefly mention the types of offering which were called korbanot. That's the Hebrew word, korbanot, from which we get the word korbono, offering. All right. So the, there were um, five types of offering. I'm going to mention them quickly. The first one is called the ola. And those of you who, are, who can speak Arabic or understand Arabic would know what ola means. It's essentially the ascending. That's how they called it. And it's the burnt offering. It's a general offering that you would do in case you wanted to um, 
you want to show God that you're submissive to Him. You are, you, you, you're saying to God, you are my God. I'm making this offering to simply say, you are my God. All right? And it means ascension. It's ascending because you see this flame and, and, and um, smoke ascending and they call it the Ola. That's how they call it. The second one, the Shlamim, is a peace offering. And a peace offering is offered to express thanks or gratitude to God for His bounties. And the third one is the Shatat, which is a sin offering. So it was a burn offering, a peace offering, a sin offering. And that's in case you've committed some sin. But I'm not going to go into the details of this. If you're really interested, uh, there's, there, I have a whole lecture on the temple on the, on, the, on the website where I cover all this in detail. Um, but anyhow, this is the sin offering and the asham is the guilt offering. And they, they apply for different situations which are sinful. Right? Without going through the details of all of this. And the last, and, oh, I'm sorry, there are six. The mincha is the food and drink offering. It's a meal offering to represent the devotion of the fruit of man's work to God. So, you had a, this is where I also get this tithe from, right? You had a good year, God was bountiful with you, you bring offering to the church. You notice, in many of our liturgies, when uh, someone dies, the families of the dead person bring bread. Why do they do that? Most of them don't know why they're doing it, but they do it. The reason why they're doing it is because they're making a, it's, it's a very old tradition, it's a mincha, it's a food and drink offering to God to represent devotion. It's not a natural product. And it's at the same time a thanksgiving for the Mass and also propitiation for the sin of the departed because you're feeding people. You're making an act of charity. That's why we do it. Unfortunately, we do it without knowing why we're doing it. And so most, half of the, I mean, half the graces are lost because we have no clue why we're doing it. We just have to do it. In most cases, it's almost sinful because if we don't do it, what are people going to say? We do it for the wrong reason altogether. And the last one I'll mention to you is a very interesting one. It's called the Red Heifer. The Para Aduma, the Red Heifer. And this one, the Jews don't understand it. And really, it takes Christianity to make sense of it. Because the Para, the para Aduma, the Red Heifer, is this offering which has this weird effect of making the one who's unclean, clean, and the one who's clean, unclean. And they, they couldn't make sense of it. But they know it's related to the Messiah. So to them, the birth of a red heifer may be a precursor to the coming of the Messiah. And probably you're not aware of it because you are, I'm sure, not tracking red heifers these days. You're probably tracking the stock market, but not red heifers. But in 2000 and 2005, there were red heifers who were born. One in 2000, one in 2005. There was a big, a big uh, commotion around this. But both of them have been disqualified because they were not pure. They were not perfect. All right? So these are the types of offering. Noah offered a burnt offering, an offering of submission to say God, to God, thank you for all that you have done for me. So now God establishes a covenant with, with Noah. And he says, well, God initially said, go into the ark, you and your sons, and your wife and your son's wife. If you read the text, when he tells them to go into the ark, he specified the order. You, your sons, your wife, your son's wife. 
not two by two. He separates them. And all the fathers understood that, that during that period, it was a period of chastity. There were no relationships for purification. Okay? And when he comes out of the ark, and, yeah, St. Beatty points out that that separation indicates chastity since the crime for which the world was being punished was defilement of the marital bed. So remember in chapter 6, there's this whole business of the sons of God marrying the, the daughters of women, which I cover in that section. But essentially, it was the sexual sin that, was, that provoked God's anger, and there's reasons for it. So here, these people are doing atonement, in a sense, to, to make up for that sin. All right? And St. Ambrose, Ambrose points the same thing, but by, by noting that the order of entering the ark and then of leaving it is reversed. So when they leave, it's the opposite order. The son's wives, the wife, the sons, and finally Noah. In that order. And St. Ephraim extends this point to include the animals since they came into the ark one by one and now they're coming out two by two. Right? So the whole notion was that there is this um, indication of uh, chastity while they were in the church, while they were in the ark. Purity. Right? And I've talked to, talked to you enough about uh, sexuality and how the church sees sexuality as not only a beautiful thing and a good thing, and a wholesome thing, but also as a holy thing. Right? Uh, sexuality is the prayer of the body. It's a beautiful thing. And the church wants sexuality to be preserved for its true purpose and not be squandered. Right? So, um, and then when they come out of the, 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 um, the ark, God lifts the restriction on meat and tells them, I'll give you the animals now. Now you can eat meat. Right now, you can eat meat, but there's only one restriction: you can't eat it with its blood. You've heard, I'm sure, of kosher meat, or the Muslim equivalent, halal, halal, as we say. Right? What is that? It's meat where you drain the blood. Right? That goes back to this covenant. Right? Now, notice this covenant doesn't cover Jews and Muslims and Christians only; it covers. The entire human race. Everybody is bound by that covenant. Do read it. Chapter 9. It binds the entire human race. I want to tell you something very fundamental about this one. What are you supposed to do before you eat the meat? No, 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 no. Before, yes, yes, you cook it. Well, I meant in this context, though. You drain the blood. Yes? You're not to take the blood. Why? Here's why. The blood was conceived to be the life force of the animal. By draining the blood, you're saying to God, I am returning to you that which you've put into the animal. I am not going to take the life force of that animal into me. Because it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to you. And I understand that what you're giving me to eat is with your permission. You understand the whole psychology behind it? That is why. It is not for, you know, primarily for health reasons. It was for the health of the soul. Recognition of God as being the author of life. And we are not the ones who can take that life without His permission. 
Yeah? That's the meaning of this. You're all with me? No? Yes? Okay. Now, flip quickly to the Gospel of St. John, chapter 6. Let me start reading to you from verse 35 in chapter 6. And keep what I just read to you in context. So, this covenant is given by God. You will eat the meat of the animal, but not the blood. If you drink the blood, what happens to you? Well, no, you don't die. But you fall under what? The curses of the covenant. You get it? Because you've broken God's covenant. God gave that covenant, and you have to follow it. Yeah? You can't drink the blood. And that applies universally to everybody. Now watch what happens in John chapter 6, verse 35 and following. This is our Lord speaking. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All right. Sorry. Let me read a little bit further. Yes. A little bit further. Verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay? So right there, there's an issue. They murmured. Murmured meaning dissent. Dissent. How can he give us his flesh to eat? Okay? So Jesus continues. Now, listen carefully. This is the key one. Verse 52. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. What did God tell them not to do here? And what is Jesus saying? Whoa, short circuit. This man is actually asking us, he is, ask, he is commanding us to violate God's covenant. Yeah? That's why they left him. And Jesus turned to his apostles and said, Do you want to leave too? And Peter said, Lord, where shall we go? We have come to know and believe that you have the word of eternal life. Translation, if there isn't another Messiah that you know of, that will be the time to point him to us. Because that's a huge short circuit. Never mind the business of uh, eating flesh and drinking blood on a natural level. Covenantally, God forbade us to eat, to drink the blood. And yes, you tell us three times we have to, br- to drink this blood. So when they drink the blood, what happens? Think about it. They're under the, cov- the, curse- the covenant curses, right? Which means what? They are no longer part of the family of Noah, right? Which means they're, not lo- they're no longer part of the family of who? Adam. That's exactly what Jesus wants. You're no longer part of the family of Adam. You are now part of the family of the new Adam. You have to leave your old family and come to the new. And the question is, 
But Lord, what about the curses? And he says, I will take care of them. I will bear that curse. Right there in the covenant of Noah, there is already the prefiguration of the cross. And then, <clears throat> you've all heard about the rainbow, right? God says, I'm not going to do this again. And to show you I'm not going to do it, I'm going to put a rainbow in the cloud. The beautiful rainbow. Okay, why did God put a rainbow in the cloud? You know, there's one pet peeve I have with little books for little kids that talk to you about, uh, you know, Noah. Noah looks like a Santa Claus Jr. Standing right there, he's bald, big white beard, big grin on his face. And the thing that kills me every single time is the giraffe. I can't dig the giraffe. They're standing right behind him, and they have these big grins on their faces too. Have you ever seen a giraffe? It's the most serious animal you'll ever meet. What's up with that smile on the face of the giraffe? My pet peeve is that they take this very powerful story and turn it into this little cutesy little thing, and the kids miss the story, miss what's going on here. Why did God put a rainbow in the cloud? What does that indicate? What, what, what's the rainbow? What is it? It's a... Yeah, it is light. But what, is it, what does it look like? A bow. It's a bow. Yeah? What do you do with a bow? You shoot arrows. So what did God do? He took his weapon of war and hung it for everybody to see that peace is present. That's the meaning of that symbolism. Okay? And if you go to Revelation chapter 6, you'll see when the four horsemen of the apocalypse show up, the first one, the leader, has what? A bow. God has just unhung his bow. Yeah? That's what it means. God will remember the covenant. What does Jesus say, to, say in the, um, when he established the Eucharist? Right? Do this in remembrance. What does that mean? The, word, the Greek word is anamnesis, the opposite of amnesia. It's making present, not remembering. Us. Oh yeah, I remember when this happened. That's not what he means. He means make present. When God says, I will remember, it means I will make present the covenant. The promises I made for you. And if you are faithful, I'll bless you. That's what it means. So that's why you have this bow up in the clouds. Very good. And I'm going to take a couple more minutes over the hour to talk to you about one more thing. In chapter 9, verse 6, God, uh, chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, this is a controversial topic. I love that word. It's the PC way of saying to people to shut up because it's controversial. You're not supposed to talk about it. Well, our faith is controversial. Verses 5 and 6 in chapter 9. For your lifeblood I will surely require reckoning. Of every beast I will require it, and of man. Of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Of every beast I will require it. He means that if a beast kills a man, he will require reckoning. And if a brother kills a brother, he will require reckoning. And then he adds, Who sh who, who's, whoever sheds the blood of man 
by man shall, shall his blood be shed. Okay? That's part of the covenant. This, is, this, my friends, is the foundation of the position of the Catholic Church on, on capital punishment. It's right here. Who, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Before I go there, St. Ambrose points out that murder is bestial. It degrades man to that of a beast. Okay? And in the, in the book of Revelation, you probably have heard of the number 666, 666. The reason why it's six is because on the sixth day, God created the beasts. And we were created, for the, we were created with the beast on the sixth day, but for the seventh day. So the number by which we should be signed is 777. Right? But when man degrades himself, rejects God, he takes on the number of the beast. And the Antichrist takes it to the extreme, six tripled. All right? Now, I'm going to quote from a book and, a, and, a, uh, and an author that I like quite a bit, Peter Kreeft. Uh, the book is called Catholic Christianity on, on the topic of capital punishment, page 229. He's actually quoting from the Catechism as well. Catechism, the paragraph 2266. The efforts of the state to curb the spread of behavior harmful to people's rights and to the basic rules of civil society correspond to the requirements of safeguarding the common good. Legitimate public authority has the right and the duty to inflict punishment proportionate to the gravity of the offense. That's the catechism. Also, paragraph 2267. Assuming that the guilty party's identity and responsibility have been fully determined, the traditional teaching of the church does not exclude recourse to the death penalty if this is the only possible way of effectively defending human lives against the unjust aggressor. And so Peter Kreef points out that the morality of capital punishment follows the same principle as the morality of a just self-defense. If in a situation of self-defense, a man is aggressing another man, is about to kill him, you have every duty to apply the necessary force to stop him from committing this crime, including taking away his life, if there is no other recourse. Why? Because it's also an act of charity towards the murderer. How so? By preventing him from getting along with his crime, you lessen his punishment. You understand? Hmm? So, that's where capital punishment comes from. And it was really interesting, I was talking to someone who saw the movie um, um, The Dark Knight. How many of you have seen this movie? Okay, so you're familiar with the character of the Joker in this movie. And this person was pointing out to me, why didn't Batman kill him? He should have killed him. And I pointed out, being a fan of Batman for now a number of years, that Batman will not appoint himself um, sort of, um, he will not appoint himself as executioner, as a judge, all at the same time. He's not going to take all three powers and grab them because then you get tyranny. His job is to stop the Joker. His job is not to judge him and to condemn him. If we were to stop him, judge him and condemn him, he'll turn into a tyrant. All right? But it was interesting that in that specific instance, this person who has different views on the capital punishment was saying, why does he kill him? Our society today 
to give you a couple of uh, statistics, which are kind of interesting. Um, as of December 31st, 2007, these are statistics are taken from, uh, from the Department of Justice, Office of Justice Programs, Bureau of Justice Statistics. 2,293,157 prisoners in the United States. The size of a country, small country. This is how many people there are in prison today. It's actually one out of 131 Americans is in jail. The conditions of the prisons in California are horrendous. There's an overpopulation of, of people in jails in California. The conditions are horrible. And the, per- the percent of sentenced state inmates is simply r- r- uh, rising. And particularly, the violent crimes are on the rise. In 1995, 47% of all folks in jail were jailed for violent crimes. In, 19, in 2005... were jailed for violent crimes. So this is on a rise consistently. And out of these 2.293 million, about 3,000 are on death row. Not executed, but on death row. A very small portion of them are on death row. So going back to what I was saying to you earlier, it is is sort of interesting to... um, Oh yeah, one more... Statistics, kind of interesting. Five states, Vermont, Michigan, Oregon, Oregon, Connecticut, and Delaware, now spend as much as or more on corrections as on higher education. Um, Maryland is near the top, spending 74 cents on corrections for every dollar it spends on higher education. And so it costs this nation about $50 billion, $50 billion dollars to keep people in jail. Now, there is a difference in the way the church sees capital punishment and the way the state sees capital punishment. The church sees it as a necessity only in case we have of no other way of preventing this person from causing harm. The church doesn't base its, her judgment on the severity of the crime. Because she wants to give that sinner every chance of repenting. The state, on the other hand, restricts capital punishment to specific crimes, which are called you know, heinous crimes, or very, there's some number of categories where someone will be then passable of, the, of, the, um, um, of capital punishment. The consideration here is not mercy. It is what fits, what fits the, the, um, the crime, which punishment fits the crime. Now, you don't wonder in these situations where economic recession is hitting, if the situation worsens further and further, and you have all these people in jail, what would the state do? What would you do? Would you spend money on inmates, prisoners, or would you spend money on schools? Oddly enough, that little trick that the Joker played on them with the two boats, each holding a, um, the, uh, the trigger to... to for the explosive in the other boat, might come to the society as well. And it's only the grace of God that makes man generous and willing to sacrifice. Without the will to sacrifice, without the training in sacrifice, without a will to understand that we need to give God what is His due and more, to love Him and serve Him and be with Him forever, this society is doomed. Only the grace of God flowing through the church into the world will save her, will save this world. And it is through the church. 
And so it is worthwhile to remember what God told us, what Jesus told us. Be not afraid. I am with you. So keep those things in mind as you think about your week, about Lent, and walk with Jesus during Lent so He may reward you abundantly and protect you and keep you as the storm gathers and gets darker and darker. Because after that storm, the sun will shine. And there is going to be a period of growth for the church. That's why the storm is gathering. Always remember that. And God bless you. So what I think we should do now, questions. Is the tithe separate than the money offering in Mass? No, it is part of your tithe. Yes? Oh, um, no, we're not. We're not under obligation of eating meat without its blood the way it was before. However, the spirit of, the, of it is still with us. Um, so, for instance, you know, you eat, uh, you eat a steak, and it's rare. Right? It's not halal. It's not a sin to do so. The, the point, though, is to re- because we're not anymore under the natural covenant. We are under the supernatural covenant of the Son of God, which requires us, though, to be um, temperate in food. It imposes, a, in a sense, a more important restriction over the way we eat. And, obviously, uh, we have to not, not squander the resources he gave us. Do, have I answered your question? Okay, very good. Yes. Oh, yes, a red heifer. Yes, what is that? A heifer is an animal. Okay. When a red heifer is born, it's, uh, to the Jews, it could, it could signal the coming of the Messiah. Because the red heifer is associated with the Messiah. There are, <laughs> they will look for what they consider to be uh, imperfections in the color and the skin and the shape. Just as when you offered a lamb, it had to be a, a perfect lamb. And I don't know the specifics and the details of it. No, he takes it to rabbis. There's a whole, yes, yes. Do, do I have an accent? I don't like the accents. So maybe that's what it is, a heifer. Thank you. H-E, that's it. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you one day some things that my accent had played with me, but it's a heifer. Thank you. No, you're certainly not saying it wrong, uh, based on my uh, past experience here, as some of my friends could attest. Thank you. You had something to say? Yes. So the church teaches that um, those who are saved, who are members of the church, let me give you an example. To be a member of the Catholic Church doesn't necessarily mean you're formally a member of the Catholic Church. A baptized baby who's born to a non-Catholic family, but he was baptized. If that baby dies, or any child who's baptized, who dies before the age of reason, is claimed by the Church. All right? In case of invincible ignorance, somebody who's never heard of the faith, never heard of the Church, etc., but someone who lived according to the dictate of their conscience, the Second Vatican Council teaches that this person is, can also be saved. However, let's not, let's not imagine that that happens frequently, because it's hard. All right? Yes. Well, obviously, the flood was caused because of all the sins that were being done at the time. Right? And as I said in the previous lecture, I went through it uh, quite a bit in detail. So I'm not going to recover the section right now. Yeah. But effectively, in, in summary, the flood was caused by the sins of the sons of Cain and the sons of Seth on both sides. Yeah. Have I answered your question? Yes, yes. I mean, obviously the line ends because only eight survived. That 
No, Noah was not part of line of Cain. Remember, Cain and Seth, the two, okay. the two sons of Adam, the line of Cain perished completely. And out of the line of Seth, the only one who survived with his family is Noah and his immediate family. Yes, that essentially... So when he said, you have to drink my blood, he's asking them to violate the covenant of Noah. Because when you violate the covenant of Noah, you are effectively excommunicated of his family. You're taken out of the family of Noah. That means you're no longer part of the family of Adam. But through the Eucharist, through the Eucharist, yes, it all goes back to the line of, of Adam. Yes, it breaks us out of the line of Adam and makes us sons and daughters of God, incorporated into the new Adam, Jesus Christ. Yes. Is it related that we say that Christ said, I have come not to abrogate the law, but to complete it? Um, don't see the relationship. You might want to explain to me what you had in mind. But it's the completion of the law. That new covenant is the completion of the law. Not at all, because the law... See, the law points to Jesus Christ. I don't have time to do an exegesis of the law right now, but the whole point of the law is to put something in place until Jesus comes. And when He comes, He completes it by giving it its full meaning, its full intent. All right? It doesn't mean that He is asking us to fulfill every single thing in the law as it was laid down. Because if that was the case, we would be doing what the Jews do today, which we don't. Yeah? It had a different meaning. Yeah. Questions on that side? We don't know. That's a good question. We, there may have been, although there would have been very few. And the reason why we think it is the case is because when, uh, when Abraham, went down with, Abraham went down with God to Jericho and he bartered with him, God agreed that he would save the city if he could find five righteous folks. And not even found five could be found. So the thinking is, when the flood took place, something similar must have happened. Because in chapter 6, we're told that the imagination of man had become evil. All their thoughts have become evil. Now, when we look at our own time, we're not, we're not there yet. And the reason is because people tend to be generous and people give and care about others. But we're not very far. Any other question? God bless you. See you next week. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.